Last week, Pastor David mentioned uh, several fears that people have associated with Christmas time and around the Christmas season, including the fear of reindeer, which was the one that stuck in my head the most. I, I don't remember what it was called, but I remember thinking that was interesting. Uh, there were other fears, too, about shopping and, you know, crowds and that kind of thing. And, I, and that got me thinking, you know, his passage was, uh, had the angels and they said, do not fear. And it got me thinking that, you know, if you look at the rest of the Christmas story, the story itself doesn't have much within it that causes us to fear beyond those angels, and they are scary. That's the consistent testimony of Scripture. I mean, after all, though, when we think about the story of Christmas, we think about what? Like a little baby. If you drive around here at all, you're going to see decorations that are up, and there's lots of lights. It's wonderful. And when you see pictures and, you know, the representations of the Christmas story, you see usually some sort of stable-looking thing with, you know, a couple beams and a, and a, and a pointy roof, triangle-shaped thing, maybe a star, and maybe Mary and Joseph, perhaps some wise men. But you're always going to see that baby, maybe in the manger, but there's the baby that's the center of it all, and everybody's turned toward that baby. And there's not a lot of fear to fear in that, right? I think that's part of why... Uh, most uh, surveys recently have said that Christmas Eve, and in particular the, the Christmas Eve service, is the most well-attended service. It's a wonderful service, right? Centered on a baby. There's not a lot to fear. You, you know, babies are, are noisy, right? They, they, you know, but you know they don't judge you. They're not. They're not telling you you're a bad person. Uh, they might make a lot of noise. They might be a little demanding. Maybe they want some food, but really they just accept you, right? They, in fact, need you. And so I think it's easy for us to come to the story about Christmas, even if we're just on the edge of being a part of the church, and see the baby, think about that, and just consider the wonderful story. Well, as we look today at our passage, which is John 3, 16 and 17, these verses come and center on the baby about 30 years later, after he's grown up. And they explain why the baby came into the world. They are a window that opens up to us the story beyond just the manger, beyond just the stable, beyond Mary and Joseph, wise men, and everything else that we associate with Christmas. And there isn't much to fear here. And in fact, there is a lot to find hope in. So would you read with me these probably familiar verses, John 3, 16 and 17. This is God's Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Lord, this is your word. Meet us here, we pray. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, that these words will be more than ink on paper, 
pixels on our screens, sound waves hitting our eardrums, but they might be powerful and effective, giving us hope and life and an understanding above all of your love for this world and for us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to guess those words are familiar to most of you. Um, back in the day, I'm not sure if this still happens, but it used to be behind the goalposts in every NFL game, there was somebody with a John 3.16 sign. I don't know how many people actually went and read the Bible and said, oh yeah, but you know, that's what's there, is these verses. And they come in, in connection with a conversation that Jesus was having with one of the leaders of his day, uh, of the formal religious establishment, a guy named Nicodemus. And they're connected with that, I say, because it's not clear whether these are the words of Jesus or the words of John as he's writing the book and putting these things together. In the Greek that we have uh, as the original text here, it, they don't have quotation marks. I would say these are probably the words of John because the topic's a little different, the theme is a little different from what Jesus has been saying in conversation with Nicodemus. And they present to us the reality of why Jesus came into the world. And now we're looking at it today here on Christmas Eve because these words summarize why the baby is in the manger. And I don't want to go through Christmas season without making sure we all hear that very clearly. That this is the one who is the light of the world and he came into the darkness of the world. This is the one who is the creator of life and he enters the world of death. This is the one who is the only begotten or the one and only Son of God who has entered the world as a baby. And so the question for us is, is why? And before we can answer that, we need to recognize that there is a strong contrast here in this passage between the Son of God, the one that's mentioned here, and the world around Him. Now, the world is dark. One commentator puts it this way, the, the word world is used with the usual meaning in John's gospel of a place in need of God's saving grace. Now, the world here is marked, another commentator says, not so much by its bigness or by its, uh, that it has so many people, but that the world is so bad that it is dark. That's the connotation of the word world. Don't just think of a big place with lots of people, but think of a bad place with bad things happening. That's the sense throughout John's Gospel, that the world is dark. That was 2,000 years ago, and, and I don't know about you, but I don't feel like it's gotten a whole lot better. We just turn on the news, or you look at your news feeds, wherever you get the news from, and you see consistently in the last couple of months, war and violence, this conflict between Israel and Palestine and the great loss of life and the destruction going on there, Russia and Ukraine, still an ongoing conflict, Sierra Leone and, and prisoners released and attempted coups and that kind of thing in West Africa. And there are many, many more conflicts, very violent conflicts throughout the world that we don't even know about, that we don't hear about. But they are out there. The world is dark and full of war. But we don't even need to look at that, right? We, we, we know that just even in our own experience. 
that many of us have suffered through the pain of uh, divorce and broken relationships, that many of us have lost loved ones, to see people we love struggling with mental illness, cancer, brokenness. We grumble about drivers and the crowds as we go out to Christmas shop to celebrate Jesus. We grumble about politicians and policies. And this is the world into which Jesus came as a baby in that manger in the middle of nowhere. This dark world, this broken world, Jesus comes into it. The Son of God comes into it as the only begotten Son. Our text translates it as. You could also translate it as the one and only. Uh, D.A. Carson says that, that that expression is about the greatness of the gift. You know, the badness of the world contrasted with the greatness of this gift of Jesus. That the Father gave His best is the sense, He says, the unique and beloved Son into the dark world, into this broken place. The best came into the worst. And that's the overarching theme. That's the principle that we see here. That the best came into the worst. And then we ask that question, well, Why? Why would God do that? And the first of all, what we see is that He came to save the world. That Jesus the Son came to save the world, not to destroy this world. You look at verse... Where's my glasses? There we go. We see this in the end of verse 16. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That He came into the world, not that the world would perish, which is a sense of His suffering loss or destruction. It describes what a thief does in John 10.10. The thief comes to kill and destroy to cause loss and brokenness. Destruction. That's the sense there. It's, he came to do the opposite of that. Jesus offers life abundantly. Not that you would perish, but that you would have life, John 10, 28. That's why He came. Not to make the world end, and not to destroy, not to judge, it says as well. If you look at John 3, verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. You know, the sense of that is to condemn it's not merely He didn't send Him as a judge who would sit there and go, well, let's see, here's your right and wrong. Well, let me see the principles of law and how it all applies, and we'll decide whether you're innocent or guilty. The sense here is that He did not come to condemn, to judge the world guilty, to find it guilty, to point out the faults. You know, too often I think that's what we as Christians are known by, right? That's who the world thinks we are, is the people that go around telling you you're guilty, that you're wrong, that you're bad, that there's something wrong with you, that you ought to be ashamed of yourself, that we essentially go, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And the text explicitly says that is not why Jesus came. 
He did not come to destroy, to cause harm. He came to save the world. The Son came not to destroy, but to rescue. Look at verse 17. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world or condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. The sense of saved is rescue. That someone who is drowning needs to be saved, needs to be rescued. Someone who has fallen into a well or a deep pit needs to be rescued, pulled out, saved. don't, Don't cloud that word with a bunch of Christian jargon in your mind. It means to rescue. That you can't help yourself. You need someone to help you. You're in danger. You're overwhelmed. You're drowning. You need someone to rescue, to help you. And so Jesus comes. John presents Him as the One who comes into the dark world as light shining around that you would no longer hurt yourself bumping into things that are painful, including each other, that you would see more clearly. He came as light. The world is condemned and guilty already. In fact, that's... Jesus does not come to judge the world, but to save the world, because the world is already judged. The world is already guilty. It doesn't need any more pronouncing or declaration. Jesus comes to set it free. To say there's hope despite the brokenness. Despite the guilt that you feel, despite the shame you've experienced, despite the harms that you've caused, and and all that is wrong in your life, whether you've done it or it's been done to you, Jesus came to fix that, to rescue, to, to restore, to save, not to destroy. That's why he came. You know, verse 16 makes it even more clear. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. That they might be rescued from death. The the sense is not uh, merely rescue from that one-time physical event where your heart stops beating, your brain stops operating, and you are dead. In fact, He doesn't immediately save us from that because if He tarries and does not return, we are all going to experience that physical death. What's in view here is the eternal death. What happens after your heart stops beating? What happens after your brain activity slows down and there's no more electrical current flowing through there? What happens with the you that is your soul and with your body that begins to decay after that? He's come to rescue And to give eternal life. To free you from the alternative, which is only eternal punishment. Those are the two options. That God came to save, to rescue, to give life abundantly. Eternal life is a major theme in John's Gospel. We don't have time to really dig into it today. The word, the phrase occurs some 17 times. And this is the first occurrence of eternal life. It's very often linked to knowing God, to living with God in relationship with Him, to living for God, prioritizing that relationship. 
And the clear path throughout John's gospel and through the whole scriptures is the, the way to get eternal life, the way to be free from eternal punishment is only through Jesus Christ and believing in him, just resting in him, receiving him, that whoever, it says here, believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, not be eternally suffering loss and brokenness, but to experience life eternally forever without end. That's the, the promise here, that He came to set us free. You know, not everyone believes, though. Not everyone is, as, John, or as Jesus has been talking with Nicodemus, not everyone is born again. But the Spirit blows, Jesus says, how He wills. And it's very possible the Spirit is moving today in your heart. That maybe you've heard these things numerous times. And this time it seems to resonate. It seems to, to, to prick something deep within you. Maybe it comes to you as, as refreshing water. Maybe it comes to you and causes some concern. Jesus came to save you. To rescue you. And the only requirement He has is that you would trust Him. That you would believe this promise. That this is why He came. Not merely to be a cute little baby in a manger, but to grow up and live perfectly and to offer to rescue you and set you free. You know, what happens is we have barriers to that. There's all kinds of barriers. And sometimes, I think we need to be honest, we Christians are a barrier to people believing because we live with that condemnation mindset. That we aren't on the mindset of rescue. That, that we don't want to beat people down. We want to lift people up. We want to rescue and save we want people to live and have life abundantly. That's why He came. Is that not what we want to experience? Not just merely in this life, but for eternity to have peace. The things that we've talked about in the last four weeks. Joy, peace, hope. And experience it with God. And we need rescue. The world needs rescue. You need rescue. And the good news is that though there are barriers for us believing that, of receiving this simple free gift, they're very often overcome not merely by this truth that we've seen, right? That God sent the best into the world to save the world, but by the second part that we want us to see in this passage today, which is that the best came into the world, the Son came into the world, not only to save the world, but also to show His love. The Son came to show His love. Giving freely. Look at verse 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God so loved the world that He gave you know, the, the Greek word behind this often has a sense of generosity, that it occurs um, in context where someone has what the other person needs, and they give from what they have, supplying what someone else does not. In this context here, the, the sense is really not far from gift, that God gifted His Son, that He gave without condition freely of his son 
How could anyone ever pay that back? It's a gift to be received. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That this is the way God gives. He's not stingy. He's not miserly. He gives abundantly and extravagantly. So we don't need to fear that there's not enough love from Him for us. That we don't need to fear that somehow we have to measure up to His standard before He will give us eternal life. That's the opposite way that He has established it. That he gives freely. Because it shows His love. Because it is who He is and He is love. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. That's what we deserve by anything that we have done in this life. We've fallen short of God's plan for us. And we deserve, we've earned death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift, the free gift, no charge gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the way God operates. That He is a God of love. He can't help but show His love, giving freely. And the barrier we often have to believe that God came to save the world through Jesus, to rescue us, rather than judge us, the barrier is usually just this, that we fail to understand that God operates on a basis of love. That to know God's nature is love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. That, that is the, you can't divide up God's parts and God's uh, attributes and all that kind of thing. Uh, they're all together. But there seems to be an overarching principle that, that God's love is fundamental. It's, it's an essential part of who he is, and, and that needs to factor into every way that we understand all that he does in our lives, whether the good things or bad things happen, that it's coming from a God who is loving, a God who is showing his love. And it might not feel like it in the moment. We might have to endure an awful lot to get to the end. But that's all also part of the way he rescues in fact, sets us free from the things that are false loves in our hearts, the things that we find value in that ultimately are going to be sand, that are going to burn up, that have no lasting value. And God wants us to have this eternal life that's only going to be rooted in eternal things. And the chief eternal thing is the eternal being, the, the person of God, the, the relational being who made you and has loved you with an everlasting love. From before the foundation of the world, He has set His heart and mind on you that He might rescue you and show His love to you. He's a God who gives freely. He's also a God who takes. That is, He's the one who's taking the cost. If you look at verse 17 again of John 3. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son, in other words, to save the world. The word for sending there is uh, the Greek word apostello, from which we get apostle 
which just means sent one, one who is sent, that, that Jesus was sent and the, the Son is on a mission. Again and again throughout John's Gospel, Jesus speaks of being sent by the Father and understanding that He has on a mission, essentially, that He has come for a reason. He has a purpose. And He reveals that purpose, in fact, just before our passage. In the conversation with Nicodemus, Toward the end of it, right before our passage in John 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up, John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes will in Him have eternal life, is the way it's translated here. Whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. The, the Son must be lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. I'm going to guess that's probably not a passage most of you are very familiar with. It's not one I'm very familiar with, and I have to go search for it every time I wind up reading this passage, because I remember... This is in the Old Testament. In fact, in Numbers 21, Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've rebelled against God's purpose from them, grumbled and complained time and again, right? And they've, they've rejected their trip to the promised land and all those kind of things. And this is one of those incidents where they're grumbling and complaining against Moses and against God, against the, the, the borderline magical food that just shows up every day. They're like, oh, we're sick of this, you know, we just go back, you know, and we had it better. They're grumbling and complaining. And God allows them to be afflicted by snakes on the ground, going around biting them poisonous or venomous, whatever the right word is, that afflict them and kill many of them. And Moses cries out. The people say, intercede for us. And so they, Moses cries out to God and God says, here's what you do. Make a, a model of the snake and put it up on a pole. And when the people will look at the snake, I will set them free from the snakes that afflict them on the ground. And they won't be harmed. I once heard Brian Chappell preach a wonderful sermon on this passage from Numbers 21 and from John 3 here. And the gist of it is this, that the picture that God is revealing to His people of old and using here again to remind us is that, that sin has consequences. That sin afflicts us and sin causes death just like a snake biting with venom injected into us. And Jesus says, I'm like that snake, the model up on the pole. And the reason you're afflicted, the reason you sin, the reason you're broken and things aren't going well is that you're rebelling against me, God says. And so if you will admit that, and if you will look to the snake lifted up on the pole, if you will trust me, in other words, not in the power of a snake model, but in the one who has said, this is the way I'm going to heal you, then you will be well. And Jesus is saying, that's the picture of what I am going to do. Jesus says, I am going to be raised up and you're going to look at me and if you will believe that that takes care of your sin problem, your guilt, your shame, your brokenness, if you would trust that Jesus up on the cross is sufficient and will believe that and turn back to Him again and again as long as it takes on this life, then you will, then you will receive eternal life. That you will be set free. 
1 John 4, 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus says, I'm going to take your place. I'm going to bear your sin. It's going to be lifted up on a tree, nailed to a cross, and you'll be set free. And all you have to do is believe that. That the best came into the worst to save the world, to show His love. And the response we must have is to move beyond the baby in the manger, which is wonderful. Don't hear me saying I have problems with that. right? Move beyond the baby. Move beyond the manger. Move beyond Christmas itself to understand that God wants so much more than just this little season of happiness. And is it not wonderful that we at least get here on earth so often during this season a lot of joy? You, you walk around and hear Christmas carols, even in very secular settings. You still hear those Christmas carols, and you can't help but sing them. And it's, it brings joy, right? But get beyond even that. Like what God has for us is an unending season like that. That He has a plan for you that if you will believe in Jesus, that that doesn't need to end. It doesn't mean we won't suffer in this life. It doesn't mean we won't ultimately physically die. But beyond that is a never-ending Christmas season. That it's only going to come, though, when you recognize that there is nothing in this world that's going to supply it. That we are a people who need rescue. And that we need the best to come into here. Because we really are, in our hearts, dark. The worst and we need rescue. And that's exactly what God offers. So in that, we can stop condemning ourselves, stop judging ourselves, certainly stop pointing our fingers at other people and point to this hope. Because really deep down, everyone knows they're guilty. What they don't know and what they probably will never hear unless you make it real to them is that there's hope. Because God knows it. And God sent his son into this world to save it. To rescue it. To show his love. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, let us this Christmas season maybe grasp for the first time. Maybe have it penetrate deeper into our hearts. Maybe remind us again of your great love. Lord, in a country that is very divided politically, that is very quick to argue, to cancel, to fight, to judge, to condemn, let us be a people bent on rescue. A people who withhold our judgments that we might serve, that we might draw near, even as You drew near in the darkness, Lord. Give us a confidence that the light that you shine in this world can shine through us that we might bring hope, that we might bring peace, that we, O oh Lord, might bring joy because we bring your love. We pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.